When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming up in this week's episode of Weaponized, Philip Orso. Now, this is a, a really serious military guy that, that really came to you before he was ever public. Did my best to record the story that he told. And I thought, you know, this is footage that most of which has not been seen. So I thought we could play some of it. So in the, in the files that you had, there was a report on an autopsy? Yeah. The thing that interested me was the lip gland parts and digestive system, which didn't exist. He also told a story about being at White Sands, uh, New Mexico, at that base, and being out in the desert and meeting an alien. Later, something mysterious happened that disappeared. But anyway, that's another story. And all the material disappeared? The, the saucer itself. Secrets, cover-ups, and strange phenomena. UFOs and ideas that challenge reality itself. All these mysteries, all this time. Are we ever going to get to the bottom of these? My name is George Knapp. I dig into news stories that others can't or won't. I'm Jeremy Corbell, and for some reason, people tell me things they probably shouldn't. And this is Weaponized. Weaponized. This is Weaponized, Jeremy. Long time no see. Yeah, nice to be in the studio, man. Good to see you. So 2023 might be remembered as the year that stories about reverse engineering and crash saucers went from folklore to a front burner issue because of a testimony under oath of David Grush. We know that there are other witnesses who've come forward, spoke to Grush. The information has been transmitted to the Department of Defense, to the Inspector General uh, of the Intelligence Community. Uh, there's a lot of heft behind this story about crash saucers, reverse engineering. Stories that we heard from Bob Lazar long, long ago. Uh, but that is not the first time this stuff has come up before. So I thought we might talk about today about Colonel Philip Corso. Yeah, absolutely. And you have a very unique, and I'm glad our audience gets to hear this from you. You know, you've kind of been at the forefront of everything, man, recording people before they were known in public. So, of course, you broke the Bob Lazar story, our friend Bob. You know, you broke that story in silhouette, talking about reverse engineering. But Philip Corso, now this is a, a really serious military guy that, that really came to you before he was ever public, before he wrote his book Day After Roswell, which is real famous now. And he had some pretty astounding claims. But who, who was he? First of all, he was a real military guy. Real guy. So uh, 1992, I had taken some leave away from Channel 8, KLAS, to work on a series of UFO documentaries, uh, UFOs, The Best Evidence, which we hoped would be come a, a long-running series, just didn't work out that way. But I get a call from a colleague of mine named Mark Sauter. He was a reporter for Cairo in Seattle. And the reason we knew each other is we were both working on stories about POWs that had been left behind in Vietnam and in Korea. And Mark Sauter uh, was aware that I had an interest in that issue. He had gained testimony from a guy named Colonel Philip Corso. Corso appeared before a Senate committee and told them that hundreds of Americans soldiers had been left behind, abandoned in Korea. And it was highly controversial testimony at the time, but in the years that followed, it proved to be pretty much true. Uh, I think he also said the same thing about Vietnam. But along with that conversation with my friend Mark Sauter, 
He told this other story about UFOs, crashed saucers, Roswell, and Mark thought, well, that's my bailiwick, so he called me up and, and told me about it, and I reached out to Corso, and we struck up a friendship and had multiple long-term conversations on the phone about what he knew, and he told me this incredible story that he had seen the Roswell wreckage, that he had seen an alien uh, body that, uh, you know, that he had, as part of his official duties for the U.S. Army, seeded uh, private companies and labs with alien technology to give them a little boost in, in producing what we now know as really dramatic high-tech instruments and, and technology. So I thought, wow, that's a pretty wild story. I said, would you be interested in telling that story on camera? Would you come out to Las Vegas? And he said, yeah. And for a while, he wanted me to write his book. He thought I was the guy to write the book that eventually became The Day After Roswell. We bought him a ticket, round trip, non-refundable for some reason, and the day before he's supposed to come out, I get a call from a guy who turned out to be his new agent who said, we're not coming. Uh, we're not going to, we're, we're doing something else. We're going in a different direction. And that was, that, that was a big disappointment, but it wasn't the end of the sto end of the road, my road with Colonel Corso. Flash forward four years later, 1996, Robert Bigelow has created something called NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. I was sort of a consultant, a friend of Bigelow's, and also a consultant to them, and they were looking for ideas on, on things to do. This is before Bigelow bought what we now know as Skinwalker Ranch. So I, I, it occurred to me, as they're looking for projects to investigate, I do this guy, Philip Corso. Enough time has gone by, water under the bridge. I knew the 50th anniversary of Roswell was coming, and the book that I was originally asked to write was probably in, in production. So I just reached out to him and called him up. And he talked to me again, and I said, I'm working with some guys, uh, including some ex-government intelligence folks, and they're interested in your story. Can we come and see you? And he said, yeah. Uh, he lived in, in Jupiter, Florida, I think, or um, a little town outside of J Jupiter, Florida. So Bigelow gives us his jet. Uh, John Alexander and I jump on a plane with another NIDS guy. We stop in Austin, Texas, picked up a fellow named Dr. Hal Putoff and flew on to Florida and spent some time with Corso. Over a couple of days, uh, we go to his house, and Corso did not want his family to overhear what he was going to say, because I guess apparently it was kind of sensitive with them, and they didn't want him spilling all the beans to some outsiders before the book came out. So we all went outside into an RV and sat there for multiple hours, and he told this story. And I brought along a little camera. I am not a talented phot photographer like you, Jeremy. <laughs> But I did my best to record this story that he told. And I thought, you know, this is footage that most of which has not been seen. So I thought we could play some of it. Yeah. And so this is the, the first time that he has gone on camera. And, and you back in the day were able to get this interview. So let's just back up a second. So sure. Philip Corso, it sounds to me like he was a military whistleblower about prisoners of war. And he testified to Congress. Yes. So, so look, you got a guy who's already like a whistleblower. He's like, no, I'm going to tell the truth about something in a rough situation. Then he tells you all this stuff about UFOs. Now, the core that I know of his claims was that reverse engineering programs were indeed going on, that we got what we call derivative technologies. So there are certain things from UFO exploitation or reverse engineering programs that were seeded into private industry. Of course, he took credit for seeding it. Yeah. But whether that's true or not, his basic premise was that things like uh, you know, particle beam technology. I remember something to do with uh, capacitors. I remember even uh, Kevlar, he said. All of this stuff, uh, you know, fiber optics, 
was a result of reverse engineering on UFOs. It's very strange because now we're sitting in a world where it's much more possible to understand that we are reverse engineering UFOs. We have been for a long time. So it rings true to some degree that there would be derivative technologies. Maybe Colonel Corso was telling us the truth all, as a whistleblower all the way back then. What's your gut on that? I think he was telling the truth as he knows it. And I think that probably they did do a seeding uh, operation and put this out there. Now, of course, the industries that are based on these multi-million dollar technologies and businesses, they all deny it. They said, oh, no, no, we did it all on our own. And of course, you, you probably, um, that their case is pretty strong that they, they figured it out on their own. Uh, but I, I suspect that if they had something that seeded it and started them off down this road, they wouldn't admit it, that it came from somewhere else. But Colonel Corso was a real guy. I, I know a lot of people found his story about this technology and its original source to be hard to believe. But I know in the course of NIDS investigating his background, they found out he was a real guy who really had these amazing jobs and was a high-level trusted intelligence officer who had done some amazing things, had uh, won high awards, had had worked very closely with, uh, during the Korean War, he worked for General MacArthur, who was the commander of the forces there. Uh, in World War II, he had been an intelligence chief in, in Rome and had helped sort of govern the, the, uh, the country of Italy after World War II. He rescued something like 10,000 Jews, got them out of Rome and to Palestine, which is the newly created Jewish state. And uh, he did a lot of amazing things. And in, I think it's 1961? Yeah, porn. 1961, he becomes chief of what they called the Foreign Technology Division for the Department of Defense. And boy, we didn't know how foreign this technology really was. But he said there was a uh, a file cabinet there that had crash retrieval materials from Roswell. Yeah. So when people say, you know, foreign technologies division of the Pentagon, you know, of development, that's like anything foreign to us. Right. So it could be a Russian spy plane. It could be something more exotic. But this is a guy in position to know. It's a guy in position to have his hands on this stuff. I found it also interesting that around um, his work, there was, uh, who is it? Admiral, starts with an H, his name. He was first- Hillencoder. Hillencoder. First head of the CIA was always rumored to be part of this as well. Somebody that he worked with. So it's like when you look at somebody's past through the lens of today, it's much more plausible that what he said in his book, The After Roswell, is true. That there are these developments that, that were- gleaned from the reverse engineering of ufos so man that's what's so kind of incredible about the hearings that just happened with with david grush and commander fravor and lieutenant graves was that really opened a pandora's box where now we we have we have some questions we need answers to is it true what david grush said is it true that there are these exploitation programs not only of hardware but of biologicals i mean that's that's the the number one question who has it hands-on. You and I have talked to people who are currently working in agencies that claim to have these experiences, hands-on experiences. I mean, we are so close to getting that truth. I hope it can be public. Yeah. Well, Corso, again, he his career is documentable. It's not like he is a mystery man who's, whose uh, career path can't be documented. He's a real guy who had these amazing positions. As an intelligence officer, he had a distinguished career. He worked under MacArthur. He worked under this General Arthur Trudeau, who was the boss of that uh, technology division in the Pentagon. Uh, foreign technology is also the term that Wright-Patterson has always used for their secret projects there, which is kind of an interesting coincidence. But um, 
so Corso really did have these jobs. And uh, the, the case he makes in his book, The Day After Roswell, which didn't come out until 97, the 50th anniversary of the crash, um, is a pretty strong one. And so we recorded an interview with him there in that RV in Florida. And I thought we could play a little bit of that. And then we'll get into some other things. The following is an interview with Philip J. Corso, recorded in 1996 in Florida. You say you also had uh, reports on uh, bodies, on alien bodies? I had, yeah, that came from uh, Walter Reed. Hmm. Were they pretty, I mean, they, they definitely said not that these were genetic humans or no, something. No, here's what, uh, the report, the thing that I was mostly interested in in the report was the two lobes in the brain. There are two lobes there. Mm -hmm. And this movie showed part of that. They didn't know what they had, though. Right. Uh, there was two lobes in the brain, and inter interconnected. And also, the lid. That's where I got the information on the extra lid, extra eyelid. And we figured that that extra eyelid was nothing more than a uh, something like our night viewing device. You know, filtered light. Mm -hmm. Did know? the did the actual autopsies get done at Walter Reed? They did this particular autopsy, the, the paper that I had. Physically at Walter Reed? I don't know if it done physically there or not. I couldn't tell you. Okay. But the report came out of Walter Reed? The report came out of at our laboratory. We financed that laboratory. There was, a, there was a crash at the plane of St. Augustine. At the same time as Roswell yeah. or later? Later. No, about the same time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the fiber optics came from there. And there was that one little crash there had an opening. And there was bodies there, too. Mm -hmm. St. Augustine was gobbled up in a hurry. Later, something mysterious happened. It disappeared. But anyway, that's another story. You mean all the material disappeared? The, the, the saucer itself. But anyway, that's... Oh, I don't know. No, let me add. Yeah. That, that, that's I mean, did you have well, one? they come and take it back, or was it traded back? There was or? supposed to be a fire and explosion. But since it didn't exist, nobody could talk about it. You know, one of our greatest covers, I say, was... The policy that says that UFOs didn't exist. If ever it didn't exist, there was no crash. If there was no crash, there was no material. Nobody could investigate us because there was no such thing. Right. And we played that up. We moved that ahead. But the more the, the debunkers screamed, the more better we liked it. They're doing the disinformation for us. I, I got a question. I'm just I don't know if you remember this or not, but did did Colonel Corso ever talk about bodies from the Roswell crash? He did. He told me a story that he had seen a body. I'm trying to remember where it was. Fort Riley, Kansas, maybe? That it was in a hangar. And I, I'm trying to remember it. I haven't seen this material in a while. But I think it was at Fort Riley, Kansas, in a hangar there is where he saw he saw an alien body. He also told a story about being at White Sands, uh, New Mexico, at that base, and being out in the desert and meeting an alien and an, a, a live alien in a cave who gave him a message, something to the effect of, you know, it's a new world if you can take it or if you can keep it, something like that. Uh, we should probably go to that clip and see if I can find where he, where he recounted that story personally. Yeah. They, uh, they must have been afraid of our radars because uh, my encounter in that gold mine was, uh, would you... Uh, Shut your radars down. Yeah, tell me about that again. Stupid, it was noisy and last and night. Stupidly, I, I made the I had the answer. What's in this 
what do you offer? I, I, I pose uh, in human terms, give me something if you want me to do something. <laughs> right. And I, I said that in subhuman, so I didn't say what I do offer. I said, uh, what, what do you offer? I didn't say, uh, what do you give me? Or what do I trade? Sure. So what was the answer? A new world if you can take it. <clears throat> you can take it. What's he mean by that? Yeah. I don't know for sure. Uh -huh. Did he mean if we can take it, for, uh, is it too much for us? Or can we take it back? Here's what it looked like. This was red. Now I thought this was a snake at first. So you could actually, you actually saw him in front of you. That, that's the guy I saw. That's why I pulled the gun on him. It was a worthless gesture. What the hell could a 45 do? Well, I don't know. I never fired. Although I had some scatter shot. How far away are you? The one. Distance between you and, and this being? About from here to the front of the motorhome. Well, that's like eight, you know, 10 feet? Yeah. The skin is scaly. Right. Mm. I'm, I think that the skin, is, the skin is atomically alive so they can travel in space. See, we, see man can't travel in space today. Uh, how long were you in contact? I mean, you're. I say visual. my two experiences didn't last more than, uh, <laughs> if you say two or three minutes, it was a lot. Now, I haven't had any other experiences. My only experience was in the goal, in New Mexico, mm -hmm. not in any other place. Well, what after you got this, a new world, if you can take it, then what happened? Did it just disappear or did it get in a craft and take off? I left. I, disp I left. You left. I got on my, I went out to my Jeep, got on my radio. I didn't say, I didn't tell the, the being that I do it. I went up to my radio and got on and I called my command posts. And I told them, uh, you get green time yet from, why uh, say I said, yes, they said, it's due coming through any minute so we could fire again. I told them, when it comes through, I told them, this is an order. Keep our radars down for 10 minutes. And I told them, I repeat the order to the captain, I told him, keep our radar down for 10 minutes, I'm on my way. Then I get a call back on radio when I was on my way. Mm -hmm. It said the sea battery picked up a trajectory going 3,000 miles an hour. This must have been I told him, let me see the tape. You know, you had this, uh, these uh, records from Walter Reed on the autopsies, and you talked about the fact they had this uh, scaly skin that was put together in a certain fashion so on. Did they ever come to a conclusion like these were manufactured biological robots or? Uh, the only conclusion was I think we all came to this together because of the uh, sex organs and the different organs in the, was it, uh, the limper systems, lungs and, and stomach roof. But they were, it was a clone. Now, if you go back to the days of the uh, Sumerians, they call them Egis. They say they were ferry drivers, what they are. The real ones up there, the motherships. Now, no one's ever explored the Sumerian, Sitkin wrote this. Nobody's ever explored the Sumerian civilization. I think the key is there. They disappeared after a while. I think the Sumerians maybe were the mothership. 
and they tried to wipe out the human race, you know, in those days. But anyway, you got to go back in history and, uh, and see the Sumerians, mm -hmm. what they say. And they called them EGs, I-G-I-G-I-S. You, you think they were manufactured for space travel or, or time travel or something? Well, I think they were manufactured as servants. <laughs> now, my theory is, what do they want? Here, do they want a new race? Because one of the strangest things, as far as I'm concerned, is on these mutilations, they took the sex genes. And the nearest thing to the human sex organ are cattle sex organs. And by the way, they cut those with a type of laser cutter, which didn't even cut through the cells. Cut, or cut around them, yeah. Cut around the cells. That's how, good, how perfect it was. Hey, we have no such thing. A handheld cutter, a laser, we have no such thing. Man, you have just this archive of never before seen. It was the first time that he ever talked on camera. And, you know, we've got a few clips of that here. But what, what was that like in that sometimes people tell you something to your mind, you're like, okay, I get it, reverse engineering. But I met an alien in a cave? Like, how? what does that do to your brain? Yeah, that stretches a little bit. You're wondering, okay, is this guy a kook? Uh, so, you know, leaving with Hal Putoff and Alexander, Colonel Alexander, we fly back. What do you make of that? Well, let's dig into his background, see what we can confirm, which is what John did. He went to some National Archives in D.C., spent a couple of weeks putting a, back, uh, a background report together. And then uh, we told Robert Bigelow about this. He says, let's bring him out to Las Vegas, which we did a few weeks after we had gone to Florida. He comes out, meets with NIDS folks. Dr. Jacques Vallée flies in. Uh, we sit there in a, in a room, and, and they put uh, Corso through his paces over a course of about four or five hours. And again, I sat there and recorded um, not very well on this little tiny camera, and uh, we got a lot of that footage, so we can play some of that as well. The following clips are from a never-before-seen interview with Philip J. Corso, taken in 1996 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Present in this interview with me were Robert Bigelow, Al Puthoff, Colonel John B. Alexander, and Jacques Vallée. Well, I picked up the trajectory sometime in the morning. What happened was this. What happened was this. My boys called me and they said, we picked up something traveling pretty fast. We don't know the speed. We don't know how, but we've got a trajectory. And it came, it came, the boys told me, and the tape showed this, that the thing came this direction. It came this direction and fell. The trajectory looked like this. So I called White Sands. I told him, uh, not White Lion, I told him, say, I lost an art cat. Did you pick up any trajectory? They said, yes. So they gave me the trajectory, and it matched this one. Later on, I found out at home, and it picked up something. Same day. So when I picked up the trajectory, I called my pilot, because I had a little airfield up there. I had five airplanes. And there was a two-seater on those grasshoppers. It was my private. So I called the pilot, and we used to take caliche and the boys would go pick up all the, they used to go in it and wet it and roll it and we get like concrete, and that was our airfield. So I went out with the pilot, and we looked down, and we saw something shiny, and the pilot asked me, what is it? I told him I'm gonna make one of the boosters. But I knew it wasn't a booster, because I'd seen boosters from the airplane. I used to fly around a lot out there. And White Sands knew I flew around out there. Then I figured 
I said, start bombing me. I got to go out on the ground. So my command car was no good, and I didn't want to take a Jeep. So I called Floyd Bliss to send me up a command car. Remember those big command cars? And it was perfect for the desert. Because when I got the command car, they sent it right up. It took about three or four hours to get there. So I told my boys, boys, I'm leaving. I'll be back a couple hours. So I took off in the command car. I was driving myself. And I took my gun, a water bottle, electronic equipment, and a compass. And I took off. And this is the route that I took. Now, I don't know if exactly this far, but I passed Trinity site. It was south of me on that. And I cut right across country in the desert. Because a big command car could do that. I couldn't do it in the, sometimes in the Jeep. But there's big wheels on that thing. And I cut straight across. And I had the coordinates. I had a pretty good map. And when I looked to check the coordinates, I got near there. I got my binoculars out and there was nothing there. I couldn't see anything. I figured, what the hell? And I kept checking the coordinates. I figured, this is the right place. Then this damn thing appeared. And right away, my, some of mine, I'm in the desert by myself. Am I seeing things? Is this a hallucination? Because I'm out here all by myself. 110 degrees was. I still remember that day because I had a small one. Oh, the damn thing appeared. Then I timed it. I had my wristwatch on. I think it was, I have it in here. It was just a few minutes and disappeared again. Right away, I started figuring, boy, I am going to put the nutty. This must be an hallucination because these things don't happen. Damn thing appeared, disappeared, and appeared again. And I figured, I'm not going home. And I stopped a piece from it, about two or three hundred yards. And I'm not going near that damn thing. What if it appears over top of me? No one will know what the hell happened to me. So then it disappeared and appeared again. So I got enough nerve to go on. I picked up a rock and threw it in there. Picked up two rocks and sagebrush. And I took off again. Then everything appeared. When this girl went back out, the, the rock was crushed and the sagebrush was flattened out. I think, well, this thing has a body then. Maybe I'm not dreaming. Because at that stage, I still thought I was seeing things. And I'm telling you, I might have been a combat officer and had medals, but I was a little bit, a little bit scared. I mean, what the hell am I up against here? What is this? Being all by yourself, too. What did I have? A lousy pistol, 45. I figured that's a, just a pea shooter or something like that. So the next time it appeared, I got enough nerve to grump up my hand on it. It was smooth and cold. And there I started to wonder, it's 110 degrees out here. Was the sun hitting? The metal thing can't be cool. My command car, you could hardly put your hand on the steering wheel. You don't want to stay out in that sun a little bit. And this thing was cool. And then I'm sitting there wondering if I'm hallucinating, I better go back. And all at once my compass starts to spin. And the instrument went crazy. So I gunned the command car in reverse. Took off in reverse. My motor died. And the thing started to, it wasn't vibrated, it started to shake some. And all at once, it went up like this, turned on its side, and zoomed. And like I, and by the way, there were two colors up here a blue and an orange. And when it, the way I described them, I guess, a balloon. Take a balloon. And when you blow up, enlarge that, and a balloon behind it, half a balloon. The thing went in sideways this way, 
And went in that little part, and it seemed like the opening. But I went in there, and I saw two colors, and then I was standing there like a dummy, and I was looking at the blue sky. There was nothing here. It just disappeared. What was the, the approximate size and what was the shape of the craft? I say it was, uh, from my observation, it was tilted a little bit on the ground. I say, but maybe 30 feet. Can they configure the shape? What would that be? Just like a saucer, like two pie pans on top of each other. No dome or anything. At least I didn't see any dome or any bottle. And when it it uh, turned on, it turned on its side. And it didn't tilt like this. It turned. No, it turned on the side. Any sound associated with it? Was it any sound? No sound at all. Nothing. Quiet. So the thirty feet was like a diameter. Diameter. How about the height? It was just like two pie pans. Now uh, the end. When I when I was laying on the side, I could reach up and touch the end of the saucer. When I put my hand on it, it how much hand. of the saucer was above you when you put when you touched it? It was it was laying it was laying something like this. Was the top of it approximately yeah, your I, head? I right? could see the top. It was it was above my head, the end of it. Did you have the feeling at any time that you could have got inside? No, no, never in my mind. In fact, what was in my mind? Get the hell out of here. When it did take, when it did take <laughs> off, how close were you to it at that time? Oh, my my car had stalled. I'd say uh, two, three hundred, two hundred yards, maybe a couple hundred yards. Yeah, because I gunned the command car in reverse, and it was the command car. I didn't get closer about fifty feet to it, and I walked up. I gunned my command car in reverse backwards, and then the engine stalled. Maybe electromagnetism might affect the engine, I don't know. But anyway, it stalled. I thought maybe it was me hitting the gas and the gear shift wrong and stalled it. I stalled it. Maybe the thing stalled it, I don't know. And, and then this, this disappeared. And, I'm not, and uh, I made up my mind. I had orders on my desk for combat battalion, which I've wanted all my life. I'm not going to jeopardize this by trying to tell them anything. They won't believe me anyway. They tell me to shut up. That's right. So uh, I told them, I explained to me what I saw. So they both went through an explanation. The second one, the older phone, he said, you had tremendous experience. He said, that more likely was a time machine was malfunctioning. And they had to correct it. And uh, the first, and then he told me that, that what he thought the propulsion system was because of the way my equipment acted. He said it's a magnetic type propulsion system. He said your 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 instruments went wild. Yeah, just before it took off. He said they were trying to adjust their time sequence. So that's and the Germans, they didn't say that was good. They thought that was one of Wilbur Smith said you have experienced one of the great events that happened in the world. I told him, well, I didn't think it was any great event. He said, well, you did. You did. Now, that's what Wilbur Smith told me. Uh, when I was Inspector General of the 7th Army, Trudeau came to Germany. And Heidelberg sent for me to meet him at the airplane. He wanted to meet me. And I met him at the airplane. He was over there on some sort of inspection tour. Lieutenant General, they thought, the red carpet. He came with his wife. 
And the first time he'd seen me in uniform for years, they didn't recognize me. When they recognized me, he stopped the reception line, came over, and his wife came over, and I stood there. So he said, Phil, he said, um, I might be taking over R&D. You're coming with me. And I told him, naturally, I'd like to. And he said, well, I'll send for you when I go back. Later, you know, when he became, he wasn't chief of R&D then. So I came back, and they made me air defense advisor to the Maryland National Guards, senior air defense. That was the first time that the National Guard had had somebody with experience. I made them pass their NORAD and their other inspections. And I was defending the Washington area. So then a letter came from Chief Army personnel asking for my assignment to the Pentagon. So the Adjutant General of the State, old record, called me. Major General, he's the Adjutant General of the State of Maryland. He said, uh, Colonel, he said, I got an order, order here, your assignment. See, he had to release me. Once there's a job like that, they can't just pull you. The Pentagon just can't pull you. You're subject to the whims of the state agent general. So he said, uh, I told him, well, this sounds like General Trudeau, my old boss. He wants me back. He's an RD. So General Record was pretty nice. He's an old fellow. He was over 80. And he told me, he said, I won't stand in your way. Call the general and tell him I'll release you tomorrow. I walked in Trudeau's office, saluted him. He looked up, he said, you aboard, Phil? Come, yes, sir. He said, only instructions he ever gave me, he said, watch things for me, Phil. The rest I don't understand. And that was the only orders he ever gave me. Watch he, things for him. The rest don't understand. I ended up with nine clearances. They're both top secret. Did you have discussions, though, uh, as, as you were doling out this all, material? All the time. You ever discussed the implications of what it was? I went into those offices one day. There's two men there. And he said, we can talk freely with these two men, Phil. They were from North American Rockwell. And this thing here, two men came in from North American Rockwell, and they were given this. Now, Do they know where thing, it came from? It came in from my files. Yeah, but did, did the Rockwell people, were they told where we it didn't came tell from? Them. Uh, we let them, uh, like like uh, Bell, Bell Labs, we let them think. They thought that uh, the chips we stole from the Russians. We let them think that. What the hell? That was all right. Let them think it, just so they have it and do some work. They did a good job. Was there a potential problem if you gave them potentially advanced material? Well, told them it's Soviet, that they would say, oops, the Soviets are way ahead of us. Then we would watch it. A lot, a lot of times it was my job to go to see how it was coming. I'd go to the, the companies, North American, TRW, uh, Westinghouse. GE, but we had listed as number one crooked. We had listed contractors reliable and how crooked they were. They never knew we had this. Or the military organization in the early 50s was CIC answer operationally to the G2. They didn't operate on their own. When they got that G4 at Roswell, the CIC man had disappeared. He had to hand that to G2, his operational chief. G2 would pass it to the Pentagon, to G2 in the Pentagon. Armed intelligence had no R&D function. So they would pass it to R&D. In those days, R&D was under logistics. 
power logistics, secondary mission. No one cared about. Logistics was logistics. It wasn't R&D. Yet it was assigned to R&D. It was assigned to them. In 1959, Trudeau changed it all over. All R&D put under one head, Fort Monmouth and all those places, the universities and laboratories, and put them under one head, one sheet. And all this stuff was inherited. And when he created for me this, the special, the Foreign Technology Division, he created that to give us a focal point where all foreign developments would, would come into. They'd all come into me. I not only mean space, but I'm talking about the depleted uranium, helicopter arming, anti-aircraft stuff from South Africa, the toll from France. Those all would come into me. And also, anything like the flying <coughs> saucer stuff would all come in, would come into me. Other than that first batch, was there more? No. I never got anything more in the first batch. Were there reports in the files yeah, from when they had originally been looked at? Somebody had uh, done something with them, because there's reports in there. Do you remember which labs had written the reports? Uh, well, the labs weren't ours then, in those days. And I remember what uh, Paula Reed told me and Lincoln Lab told me. He said, do you remember your instructions were always not to keep any copies to send everything back? And they had to, that's why they couldn't find anything at Lincoln. They said, to, your orders were to give everything back. And those were our entire instructions. What this would cause. All weapons would be obsolete. Do you ever have a guess about where they were from? Well, we tried to, but we never came up with any definite where they were from. If it's a time machine, anywhere, <laughs> yes. Could be us. <laughs> that was the worst possibility. That's the worst one. <laughs> um, Did you ever feel like you had to uh, brief somebody else uh, in the political center of potential danger, or did you just carefully try to prepare? No, I would never brief. Oh, I did talk about this very uh, thoroughly with John McCormick because we were pretty close friends. After Kennedy died and he was number two. I don't think Jacques has heard the story about the, the Russian base, um, what happened to that Russian base, and, and I'm curious about how the information came to you. Well, CIA and the intercepts. You know, we had a system that was watching, could uh, localize all atomic detonations. And uh, that was part of it. And the other was a CIA report. Somewhere in my papers, I have a copy of CIA reports. And that happens. And there was 200 scientists killed. So they were lying to you. There was, there were two ways. I say CIA got the report and the atomic monitoring that we had worldwide. And did the report contain an explanation about what, what caused the, uh, the explosion? No one knew. But there was UFO activity in the area before that. So in the, in the files that you had, there was a report on an autopsy? Yeah. 
See, the Walter Reed Laboratory was ours. We financed it. It's long car indeed. It was our laboratory. <coughs> it wasn't bought of Walter Reed. We financed the thing. Yeah, still got us. They're still there? Yeah. I don't know if they're still there. Were there photos uh, with this report? No. Oh, I had one photo, but it was pretty messed up. You couldn't tell much from it. Of an, of an alien body? It was pretty messed up. Did they preserve any samples? They must have preserved I really, tissue samples? I, I really don't know. I don't, Genetic material? I don't think. Maybe the Air Force did. I don't think the Army ever did. I never saw a report on any preservation of anything like that. Maybe they did, but I never saw any. Okay, well, what was reported in the autopsies? Well, the thing that interested me was the limp gland part and digestive system, which didn't exist, and the brain lobe was his number one interest in this movie, by the way. When they open up the brain, they show the lobe if you look close enough. Uh, and the sex organs were all, they called it antro antropoid. No, atrophy. Lack of use. Right. Yeah, atrophy. 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 Is that the way you A-N-T-R-O-P-H-I-E-D. Yeah. Atrophy. They were lack of use. No. Sex organs were almost non-existent. So these are the things that really interested me. That's where I saw that uh, glove, you know, with the, the suction cups on. That was a glove. Yeah, that was a glove. That was no fingers. They only had four fingers on. And now that was unusual. I don't know. No thumb. I don't know how they used it then. But they disappeared. Naturally, nothing could be said because these things didn't exist as far as the government was concerned. Right. There was no talk about what happened. Couldn't say that UFO was gone or bonds were gone because uh, national policy was that they didn't exist. How can you talk? How can something be burned up in an explosion and fire when it didn't exist? Same way we played the game. We played the same game. R&D, we played a game. Nobody can investigate because when you investigate something that doesn't exist. To put out an order, cover all it. What the hell are they going to put out in order to cover? They don't know what the hell to cover. I don't think there was any cover-up. I couldn't trace one. I never knew one. I had all the clearances. I was in the spook business. Our operation, we didn't want, we had good reason not to put it out. Not only that, didn't, didn't we put it out? But we didn't have any, any PR function. Mm -hmm. We wanted to put it out. It wasn't our job to put a thing like this out. And we didn't want to do it anyway. We didn't cover it up. We wanted to give it to industry and American people, but it couldn't be done with the climate of opinion the way things were. With a political situation and all the debunkers and all the skeptics. This UFO problem has never been handled right. Never have. There hasn't been a, a real intelligent study on UFOs that bring in all the factors. If you would tell me right now, set up a plan to cover up the UFO thing, what the hell would I write? How would I approach it? And what would I say to cover up? Well, what Smith said, don't answer any questions because you don't have the answers. So what are they going to cover? Okay, well then... then there never has been a study made up. For our going forward then, uh, it would actually be nice to know that there isn't some dedicated group of people who do not want to get information out. So if that's the case, then... Uh, it ought to be possible for us to come up with a plan to help get information out or channel information well, out. Or 
Let's cannot technological. Out. Let's say that there's a, a group like this in here in my day, okay? And you came up to us. You wouldn't have gotten anything. We weren't talking to protect ourselves. Not because of you or because of him or because of him. But the thing was, we don't even talk about it. We go ahead and do our job because we got to cover our tracks if we want to operate 100%. So we can't let anybody know or talk about this thing. So that was a second recording that you did with Colonel Corso. Uh, man, I'm glad that you picked up that camera, even if it's shitty footage. <laughs> you know, that's so that's so cool to get that testimony documented. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, I think some of the claims seem to stretch the bounds of reality. You know, they they went pretty far. It's it's hard to it would be hard under the best of circumstances to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that fiber optics came from uh, inspired by these strange materials that were picked up in the desert outside Roswell, New Mexico. But that's what he says. Did did Colonel Corso have to get permission in any way to talk about the things that he did in his book? He just went for it. He just went for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think he had, uh, as I recall, he had a relationship with Strom Thurmond, who had served in the U.S. Senate longer than anybody, I think. And in fact, Strom Thurmond originally wrote the foreword to his book. Um, now, after his Strom Thurmond's staff realized, holy cow, this is a UFO uh, book, they wanted to withdraw it, but it, you know the deed had been done already. The following year is when the Roswell book came out. The day after Roswell, it's on the 50th anniversary. It was a huge bestseller, and as as a as a part of that, Corso did other interviews with other media, and he came back to Las Vegas and met with me, and we did a another interview for KLAS TV. That's it's all over the internet now, but maybe we can play a little chunk of it. Because I even told you, I think that. I was not interested in seeing UFOs. I was all interested in what was in those UFOs. Anyone familiar with UFO lore will recognize at least some of what Phil Corso says. Reports of crashed saucers, recovered alien bodies, a government cover-up. But in 50 years of UFO controversy, no one of his rank or stature has ever publicly proclaimed this level of inside knowledge. Corso was an intelligence officer inside the Eisenhower White House, assigned to the National Security Council. He also served as Inspector General of the 7th Army and commanded the 1st Nuclear Battalion in Germany. His credentials are impeccable, his record spotless, but did he really handle wreckage from a flying saucer? They came from a, a flying saucer. How do you know that? Because they were marked in the files as coming from New Mexico. Roswell? Yes, Roswell. Roswell, of course, is the most famous alleged UFO crash site in history, a story which the Air Force has tried to bury once and for all. Corso says that Army Research and Development not only had pieces of wreckage in its possession, but also reports and photos from an autopsy of an alien cadaver. I had the reports. See, the Walter Reed, the laboratory Walter Reed, was our laboratory. We financed it. He was part of the guidance system, or it, whatever it is, because it has no sex organ thing. It was part of the guide system. That's why we failed in propulsion. Corso says the Army kept the material and bodies secret because of potential enemies within the U.S. government, interests which might take over the program and destroy the reputations of those involved. He thinks the secrets are still being kept, but doesn't know by whom. Twice in the past few years, Corso has testified before Congress concerning secret activities within the Eisenhower White House. He's been thoroughly checked out and his information confirmed. But his most sensational allegation is one which American industry isn't going to like at all. 
Corso says the Army spoon-fed recovered alien technology to American industry, resulting in some of our greatest technological advances. The number one was the integrated circuit. Number two in importance was laser, because I had some laser instruments also. Then fiber optics. Such sensational claims have invited harsh criticism, but Corso doesn't mind. He names others who knew what he knows, and it's an exclusive club, he says. General Marshall, General Trudeau, General MacArthur, Von Braun, Albert, Wilbur Smith from the... I thought, I'm in good company. That's the company I'd rather be in, with those coops. So, so we're, we're kind of living in a different world now where we have to look back at what people told us before. It, you know, it dawns on me that here's a guy saying reverse engineering of UFOs was real. What happened in Roswell was real. He's a high ranking military guy. He just goes for it and puts this out. You wonder if he would seed his own story with things that are a little bit unbelievable as a way to kind of take the heat off of him. Like the fact he, that he said he, he met a live alien on his own. Or, I mean, who am I to judge? Maybe the guy is a stand-up individual who's telling the truth. I don't know, man. Remember, he drew me a picture at that first meeting uh, in Florida. In that RV, he drew me a picture of the alien that he said he met. And I think I've still got that image somewhere. And, um, you know, parts of what he said really were tough to swallow. And it was much different from the version he had first given to me. He gave me an outline of the story he wanted to tell uh, that he had written himself. Uh, when we were talking about doing a book together. And it was a much more modest telling of the story uh, than the one that eventually came out. Uh, you know, that was one of the criti criticisms of Corso that came out after the book, is that he seems to place himself at the center of every major event of the 20th century. Right. You know, it's a lot of key people. Well, the fact is he was with uh, many of the biggest events of the 20th century, right there in the thick of things with some of the, the main people who shaped that century. Right. Yeah, I mean, you wonder if the kind of fish gets bigger with each telling of the story yeah. with some of this stuff. But is the core of it uh, true? And again, I just keep going back to the the physical hardware. You know, if we have, we have been told directly from people that as they're working on this technology, about every 10 years, they wheel it back out and they try to see if our material science is caught up to replicate any of it. So it, it makes sense to me that he would be one of these original whistleblowers. And this is a guy we know was a whistleblower when it came to prisoners of war. He's got a great military career. I mean, he just doesn't seem like a liar, right? I don't think so. I, I, that wasn't my impression. Yeah. Uh, I think that the story did get a lot bigger in the retelling of it five years after I first met him. Uh, but the core of it is really interesting. He was at the places that he would have needed to be to see the stuff that he claims to have seen. Um, you know, the, the story about reverse engineering of technology, we know that there's a, a lack of progress on the propulsion technology. We haven't been able to reproduce anti-gravity uh, mechanisms uh, through using Earth technology or Earth materials. Uh, but that doesn't mean we haven't made breakthroughs on other stuff that may have come from the Roswell records or other crashes. Yeah, even like, uh, you know, the idea of artificial intelligence, you know, there, there are some people that believe that as we have kind of increased our technical knowledge that we've gained a lot of information from these reverse engineers. But my question is more, if we had a program that specifically deals with propulsion and the power source, like Lazar talked about, Project Galileo, Lazar also said that there are two other programs that he heard about, uh, Project Sidekick, which was a weaponization program, uh, a laser weaponization program. And then he talked about uh, Project, uh, was it, Looking glass. Looking glass. Looking glass. And 
looking glass was about the the lensing of gravity, you know, space-time differentials, that kind of thing. And I think the power and propulsion was Project Galileo, if I remember. So that's what Bob said. You have to imagine, he also said there, there were other programs he was sure that dealt with like language or dealt with different aspects, the biological matter. You have to imagine if you have a craft and that craft has biologicals, that you'd have a whole slew of different types of programs from language to culture to, I don't know, to everything. You'd, you'd have to imagine that. Yeah. And then let's say you're Bell Labs. Do you want to say, um, this wasn't our idea. We got the idea from some alien stuff that some colonel from the army dropped off on our doorstep? Right. Um, no, because these these patents and technologies that developed from that or developed um, are worth billions and billions of dollars. And also, if you're given actual materials that our military recovered, and there's like, you can't talk about how we gave these to you what's recovered, but anything you make from it, you can take credit for. Right. So that's a, that's a whole thing other than financials. Like if you want to keep that secrecy in place, just like how that was all built around the atomic programs, then you're going to keep your mouth shut because that was the deal to begin with. Right. Remember in an earlier show, we talked about the Russians. I know I, I got a lot of crap about this comment, but I had been told by people that we both know who were in a position to know that they they suspected the Russians had developed some kind of a weapon based on their recovered alien technology, their crash retrieval program, reverse engineering, that there's some kind of a laser beam type weapon that they have been dying to, to employ, which might explain some of the provocative uh, encounters we've had with Russian warplanes. And I know that that's a lot to swallow, um, and I can't prove it conclusively, but that's what we are told by people who have told us other things that we have been able to uh, to verify. Well, we know somebody that worked on a, a Russian down craft on a laser program from, if we're speaking plainly, and if that's true, that connection between Russia and the United States where we're both kind of fighting for this technology, I thought it was counterintuitive. But even when Bob Lazar was working out at uh, uh, S4, he talked about this partnership between Russia and the US. And he said at some point that ended. At some point there was some revelation that the US had and they kicked out the, the Russian counterparts. Now, I thought that was so weird, but when I went and investigated a bunch of people that were looking into cold fusion before it was called cold fusion, um, low nuclear energy reaction is what the old timers who worked on it, um, what they would call it. So a lot of these guys were working on that technology before it even had a name. They all talked to me about UFOs as, as well. And one thing that really struck me after hearing the Lazar story, they would tell me, how in their laboratories, there was always a phone and that phone connected directly to Russia and their counterparts in Russia. It's super counterintuitive because some of this is during the Cold War. How would scientists from two rival countries in some kind of global you know, war, basically at the time, how are they communicating on a scientific level? But it turns out it wasn't just true about UFOs. It was true about things like uh, cold fusion. So once I heard that from people that were in those laboratories you know, back in the day, that made a lot more sense to me that was going on. It's still counterintuitive, but but it's just funny. You find that in real... I was just thinking, you know, we were talking about whether to jump into the Corso topic or not. And I think with the reverse engineering crash saucers being a front burner issue, that maybe folks should revisit the, this case and, and look at the book, uh, revisit the interviews that Corso has done, 
you know, now that we know that Arrow is really digging into this stuff, <laughs> I'm sure they'll want to know if Corso was uh, what he claimed and whether he was telling the truth or not, and they'll really get to the bottom of it, right? Some people, I don't know if they know when you're being sarcastic and you <laughs> say, Arrow is really digging into this. Yeah, um, Arrow does not seem to be doing uh, what the public wants him to do, which is transparency on the issue. We, we have seen recently some drops or some archives from, from different federal agencies. That's great. But the core of the question remains, have we been reversed? I know we know what we believe to be the answer, but is it publicly going to be said that we have been reverse engineering non-human technology? Hell no, they're not going to say that. I mean, you know, again, I'm a glass half empty guy and I've been saying for a long time on this program and in, and in other formats that the closer we get to the goodies, the harder the pushback is going to become. We're seeing it right now. It's unfolding right now in D.C. The pushback against uh, Grush and the other whistleblowers, uh, the pushback on Congress, whether or not they're going to be future hearings or not. You know, we hear conflicting stories about that, but it seems like there, you know, there's some pretty strong statements uh, about and characterizations of Grush, for example, someone who supposedly knows nothing about what they're saying to Congress. Uh, we're seeing it in real time, the pushback right now. Heavy-duty lobbying behind the scenes by the, the aerospace giants and the companies that give out millions of dollars in campaign contributions. It's happening right now. And, well, we know that there has been a handful of more people that have submitted uh, their statements and their testimony to the um, intelligence community inspector general and that that has been officially done. They have officially made those now, is that going to seep out into the public? Are we going to have that as a public conversation? They're doing an investigation right now. The IC, IG is doing an investigation on the claims from these people who, by the way, we've talked with, they have firsthand direct knowledge when it comes to working on these programs. That's what everybody wants to hear. They want to have somebody stand up there in front of Congress and there will be more hearings come hell or high water. There will be, you know, there's some pit bulls in, in Congress for us. So here's the deal. Are we going to see somebody sit, standing there, sitting there and saying, I worked on an alien spacecraft. You know, people that, that are not in the public eye, people that nobody knows their name. Are we going to see that? I think we are. Well, I hope so. And we know people who are willing to do that. Right. Uh, but they're having second thoughts right now because of some of the statements that have been made by our leaders. Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick saying, I've seen no credible evidence of ET technology or anything beyond the laws of physics. We know what kind of testimony he's received. We know he's got some very specific information about places, exact buildings where this stuff is stashed. Has he gone there to look for it? Because I don't get the feeling that he has. And I know we know the effect that that's had on some of these whistleblowers who are standing by ready to put their lives and careers and reputations on the line by saying what they know about these reverse engineering programs. And they're hearing this from the guy who's in charge of the Arrow program. It's not something that builds a lot of confidence. Yeah, and to the best of my knowledge and how I understand it is there are some, I guess you'd say, defense contractors that have parts or elements uh, of a craft, certain things that are just separated to look at. But there are other ones like Lockheed that allegedly have a full craft from a known, from a known craft uh, downing or a known crash retrieval. If that information gets out, uh, there's going to be a lot of eyes on Lockheed. Now, the way this works, and I'm going to go back to a story that, that I told, I think it was on the Rogan podcast, was there was a guy working on semiconductors or superconductors or something like that. This was in the 70s. All he got was a, an, an item and it was put in front of him and it was like, hey, try to work on this. Try to tell me. No company he knew was, was, was making these like this. It was almost 100% efficient. 
no markings on it, no nothing. Again, a guy not ready to break from the fold, but I got it all documented. So when I get the thumbs up, that story's coming out. There's a lot of people like that. There's another case that, that you and I are working on that is not, we haven't talked about yet, but there was an individual who is renowned for reverse engineering in other fields. And there was an object that apparently he saw and he was taken in. I don't want to give too many details. I'm still looking to this, but he was, he was taken in and he was shown something for, I think, a couple of days and was unable to be helpful in any way because the propulsion system, the energy source of this was um, nothing that in his field he would know about. So you hear this, you hear this, that there are individuals pulled out of nowhere just because they're good at something. Like, I don't know, a guy that makes rocket cars and works at Los Alamos, <laughs> you know, he's pulled into some weird program for a very short amount of time, just kind of given the overview, set to work on it, and then bam, they're out. Never hear from it again. That's what happened to the superconductor, supercapacitor guys. Like he never got to hear about it again. So they've got these questions that linger for decades. What did I see? Where is that from? There's not many options. Well, we know that the Manhattan Project worked in with stovepipes. Mm -hmm. People were working on little slices of that that project and had no idea how it fit into the bigger picture. Um, so that really does happen. It does. It is a way that to move forward on some of these exotic technologies. Colonel Corso tells us that that's exactly what happened with multiple technologies that he helped seed into private industry. It'd be nice if there's a fresh new look into some of his allegations. Right. And I guess if you're, you know, people, we all have to kind of learn how this works, but if something's like top secret, that's great, but there's compartmentalized special access. So even if you have the right clearance, if you are not part of that, they call it a bigot list. I don't know exactly what that word means, but a special list of people that can look into it. And we've heard that people are denied access all the time, even if they're investigating this stuff. So look, it keeps secrets and that's probably generated from the atomic program. We wanted to protect this secret at all costs. So that architecture that was put in place during the, the atomic era, I think is the same architecture that's hiding the, the UFO truth to people. Well, big secrets can be kept. Big secrets are being kept. It's our job to try to expose them. It is. Thanks, man. Studios available now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your shows.